Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Ashley Berner of Johns Hopkins University tells us why education savings accounts are unlikely to lead to educational pluralism. Then, on the Research Minute, Adam Tyner tells us about a study on remediation for middle school students that had very different short-term versus long-term effects. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. You know, general rule in life in sports is always root against New York teams and always root against Philadelphia teams. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Ashley Berner. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Ashley is an associate professor and the director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, She previously served as deputy director of the CUNY Institute for Education Policy and as an administrator at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. Ashley, such an esteemed resume there. Well, I just love what I do, and I'm lucky to have been able to do it, and I'm grateful to be with my colleagues at Johns Hopkins. Very good. All right. Well, joining us as always, also David Griffith. How are you, David? I'm doing great, Mike. We had a great uh, weekend here in Washington, D.C. We went to the National Portrait Gallery with our three-year-old, which was a leap of faith. Happy Monday. Excellent. That's very good. You know, that museum, uh, yes, nice portraits, but best of all, super fun indoor space for little kids, right? With that huge atrium. Oh, yeah. No, no, I, that, it's true. It's true. It's absolutely beautiful. I'd forgotten what it was like there, but it really is nice. You should go. Probably less fun with teenagers. I mean, there's a kind of place where, you know, when, when you got a three-year-old, uh, you're like, oh, my God, it's the middle of the winter, but here's a nice, warm, indoor, sunny space. Yeah, you know, the grass is always greener, Mike. I, I enjoy teenagers that I have. I enjoy three-year-olds and I enjoy teenagers, but my daughters are now grown and highly competent, lovely young women. So grateful for that. Well, you'll have to give us all your tips, Ashley, about how to make that happen. But we are not here to do a parenting show today. We are here to do an education reform show. And we are in particular going to talk about the topic of education savings accounts and whether uh, they are a way for us to get to a system of educational pluralism. So much to unpack. Let's do that all in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Ashley. Well, as you know, there has been a lot of activity on the private school choice front this year. Uh, Both Iowa and Utah have passed universal education savings accounts programs. This on the heels of Arizona doing the same last year. A lot of excitement among our friends in the school choice world about these developments. And yet I took noted with interest, you had a great Q&A with our colleague, Robert Pondicio, last week in print in our Education Gadfly newsletter, where he was asking you about whether this is what you had in mind when you've been calling for America to have a system of educational pluralism uh, in the same way that many of the democracies in Europe have a system of educational pluralism. And what was interesting and surprising to me is that you expressed some skepticism. You said you weren't so sure that actually ESAs would get us there. And that made me very curious. So let's talk about all of that. Why don't you start by just explaining when you're talking about educational pluralism, is is that just a fancy word for school choice? Educational pluralism is not just a fancy word for school choice. It's rather 
a completely different way of structuring public education such that the government will fund a wide variety of schools and hold them all accountable for academic results. So it's a both and. Educational pluralism is the way most democracies structure public education. They include, say, the Netherlands funds 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. The United Kingdom does, Belgium, Sweden, Finland, um, Canada, Australia, most democracies support multiple kinds of schools, but there is a regulatory role for the state. And it's not to control those schools, it's to ensure kind of a public assurance of quality, academic quality. Now, why is that? And why is that part of it so important? When you look at the way modern democracies fund public education, and moreover, the reason they do so, it is not that education is some kind of private good. It is a private good, but it's not only a private good. It's a common good as well. So, for example, all of our leaders from Thomas Jefferson on down, Reagan's report on a nation at risk, the Brown versus Board of Education, all of these major reports and laws and jurisprudence argue that while the child is not the mere creature of the state, the state does have a common obligation for the next generation of citizens. So I guess what appeals to me about pluralism, educational pluralism, is it's the both and. It's yes, we want to honor distinctive families and their needs and wishes, of course, and we don't want to let go of the purpose of using taxpayer money to fund other children, which is we're all implicated in the next generation. We're all in it together. And we it matters whether kids actually learn something. It matters to me that David's three-year-old will learn how to read. It matters to David that my young adult children know how to vote and know the three branches of government. It matters. It's not like buying a pair of jeans. And these other systems around the world, it, it sounds a little bit like charter schools to me. And I, you know, look, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I'm, I'm a big fan of charter schools, as mm-hmm. my listeners know. But it does sound a little bit like that, right? The government doesn't have to run the schools. Though I suspect in most of those places, they do run some of the schools. Of course they do. 30% of the schools in the Netherlands are what we call district schools. But yes, there is some similitude with the charter schools in that the, the assumption is all different schools matter. We're not, and this is the other arresting thing about pluralism, it doesn't set up a competitive framework. So in the United Kingdom, they'll fund Hindu schools, Jewish schools, socialist schools, but they're not going to pit one entire sector against the other. So this is one of the dysfunctions of our uniform system, where only district schools for 100 years were considered legitimate public schools. The school choice language is asking for an exception for that. But in pluralism, you're not pitting districts against charters, against Catholic schools, against homeschooling. Rather, it flips the narrative. Every kid matters. Every school matters, period. All right. So now we have these education savings accounts. It's a little bit like a debit card, right? Every parent gets uh, the ability to choose a school. If that's what they want, they can take that education savings account, that debit card to a private school and pay for tuition. Uh, But they can also, uh, if they'd like, they can do a la carte. They can basically homeschool or hybrid homeschool and 
and put together an educational program for their child that uh, mixes and matches from lots of different providers. That's exciting. Again, to a lot of our libertarian friends, you say you're not, that's not really educational pluralism. Why, why is that? Because it's an appropriate goal of public policy to make sure there are no failing schools. And I'm quoting Charlie Glenn there, the, the great and terrible Charlie Glenn, who's my mentor. But so education savings accounts and tax credits and vouchers are different from one another in meaningful ways. The policy details matter. So, for example, in you know the Iowa legislation, the ESA has a preference for private school enrollment. That's probably a good thing. Whereas the Arizona's, Arizona law has 3,500 vendors from which parents can choose. And I know from having analyzed numerous curricula and from having looked at numerous different assessments, quality is, is wildly uneven. And so I would want to have an assurance that there is a quality control measure on the front end to make sure that parents are selecting from all high quality items. And I think that would be the educational pluralist model. So, or on the back end, exit exams that are meaningful. And so some of the tax credit programs, some of the ESAs that we have do require nationally normed assessments or state assessments or something. I mean, Florida's homeschooling law, for example, is their regs are quite robust. They don't just jettison public uh, assurance of quality to the wind. So there are ways to do it, ways to implement that are also acknowledging the common need for quality. And, and that we don't assume that parental choice alone, as important as it is, that that is going to be enough to get you to quality. And I think that's right. And that's where some of the research is very clear. So think about Pat Wolf's research on the DC Opportunity Scholarship Fund. His book about the parents' journey in that school choice proposition showed that parents actually learned a lot from engaging in the process. By the third year, the kids were enrolled in a really high-quality, academically robust school. The parents' language changed around what they wanted from education. It wasn't just a safe space. It was a place to create opportunity, a place for academic achievement and attainment. And so all of this is to say that parents, they need choices, but they need quality choices. Get in here, David. What, what do you think about all this? Mike, I can only agree. You know, if we trusted parents, absolutely, there'd be no such thing as child services. We need guardrails, period, full stop. I, I'm not sure what the right mechanism is, but I do know that I don't trust the state absolutely, and I don't trust parents absolutely. And we could have a very, very long conversation about educational pluralism, what we will not tolerate, uh, what we will right. not publicly fund, what we will formally require, what we will require if we're, there's going to be public funding. At the end of the day, I, I think the fundamental formulation is the correct one. The state has an interest. Taxpayers uh, you know, have a right to see a reasonable return on their investment. We all have an obligation to students that I would argue is axiomatic um, and needs to be held alongside parents' interests. So you know, school choice has never meant it's never been an absolute for me. It's important, and it it sort of cuts a lot of democratic Gordian knots uh, that we're all familiar with if we've been to school board meetings. But you need some sort of floor 
you need a reasonable approach to making sure it actually works. Yeah. And, and I'm not even sure that the child services analogy is the one I'd go with, in, in part because thankfully, that's a, there's a tiny, tiny percentage of parents you know, who are being abusive or neglectful. I feel like a much bigger problem is you know, I would look to, for example, the SNAP program, food stamps, much bigger group of people where you find that uh, we give parents basically a voucher to buy food. And what do we know? Well, we know that they uh, use that money in many cases to buy food that's not very nutritious. I'm not saying that to be judgmental of the parents. The problem is that the market hasn't responded very well in a lot of low-income neighborhoods, right? The food stamp money isn't enough to encourage Whole Foods to come in and set up a grocery store. It's barely enough for, you know, even low-cost grocery stores to set up, right? So instead, they've got these convenient markets, and it's expensive, and it doesn't have much fresh fruit and vegetable. This notion that if all we do is give parents, you know, this education savings accounts, these high-quality markets will spring up is naive. And look, I think most ESA supporters would admit that. You've got to do a lot of work to build a market. You've got to, as Ashley said, pay attention to the details. You've got to make sure that uh, you do have these things funded enough, that you have quality control mechanisms, that you have mechanisms to bring in new providers where they are needed. You know, I, I think it's probably to depend on, on which state program we're looking at. It does. It depends on the state. It depends on the details. And I think we have to look at this in, in terms of the principle and the theory, which really matters. What are we talking about? Is it a conservative principle that you just take taxpayer money and just hope for the best when you disperse it? No, I mean, that's not responsible, but it's more than just being responsible. It is about doing the best for the next generation. And that's our obligation. That's our obligation, full stop. I think the opposing sides the priority of the state versus the rights of the parents, leaning towards one side or the other is going to create an imbalance that doesn't work over the long haul. What I love about what you write, Ashley, is you talk about civil society. You know, it's a very Tocquevillian notion here. Rather than structure this as a market, you know, where we just say, okay, there's parents on one end and providers on the other. You know, you talk about the space of civil society, which is what these you know, Catholic schools and charter schools here. And uh, and even, look, some small local school districts can consider those to be, in some respects, civil society. But that, you know, by just stripping out that, uh, those intermediaries, you know, we're, we're losing something. Well, let's remember just, you know, you mentioned to Tocqueville. So he, he worried about two things. One was the tyranny of the state, and the other was the tyranny and the emptiness of the individual. And to your point, the civil society, the voluntary organizations that pull us together, that create many communities, hedge against both those extremes. And I think this is why educational pluralism can argue building up civil society is a good in and of itself. You think about all the mediating institutions like, you know, the nonprofits like the Drexel Fund that support high-quality, low-cost private schools help them scale up, the charter school growth fund that helps these local leaders develop their own strong charter schools, they begin with the end in mind, which is high quality and quality and choice. That's the end. And they work back from there to create these, if you will, clearinghouses and opportunities. Well said, Ashley. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. 
And folks can check out your writing. Tell us how they can see your stuff at Johns Hopkins, including what you've written on educational pluralism. Oh, sure. So I, I wrote a book that was published in 2017, and that's still available. If you look on our website, everything I've written in op-eds and so forth is there. I have a new book coming out next year um, with Harvard Education Press, so stay tuned on that. Thanks so much for joining us. Ashley Berner, again, Associate Professor and Director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. Hope you'll join us sometime again soon. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Adam, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Yeah. Adam Tyner filling in for Amber Northern this time on the Research Minute. Knowing that you are a football fan, uh, Amber's a football fan too, but somehow she still roots for the Washington football team, now known as the Commanders. Uh, she's very loyal and faithful in that way. But uh, uh, Super Bowl's coming up. Uh, you excited, uh, either of you? Da- David doesn't like this kind of football. Mike, have you noticed how I always maintain a polite silence when we talk about football? You do. You do. I'm excited. Both those teams seem really good. Yeah. You care one way or the other? I think I'm pulling for the Chiefs. I got a lot of family. They're Chiefs fans. And I like Mahomes. I'm not sure if he's going to be 100% or not. Does anybody know? I don't know if we know yet, but he's got that uh, great trainer working on his ankle. So he, he credited her with getting her him back into the game last time. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, general rule in life in sports is always root against New York teams and always root against Philadelphia teams. I'm kind of rooting for your former Oklahoma quarterback, Jalen Hurts, but I think I'm pulling for the Chiefs overall. And we'll let you remain silent, David. As I get older, I find myself like on both sides of these kind of things a lot where I'm rooting for like one player on one team. And I don't know. When I was a kid, it was a lot simpler. It was like you just pull for the the right team, right? I'm telling you, I know what it feels like. I I find myself on both sides of many issues. But enough with sports. Uh, What you got for us on the research front? Well, this week, we've got a new NBER working paper from David Figlio and Umid Uzek that estimates the short and longer-term effects of a middle school remediation policy. The remediation program is for sixth graders who are low-performing in English and math, and the program provides extra resources with some concerning short-term effects, but positive effects once the students get to high school. We'll also get into an interesting difference in how the districts actually implemented the policy. The study uses data from Florida, where laws passed in 2004 and 2006 required schools to place students who scored below proficient on either the end of grade English or math test into remedial classes for that subject. They use data from 12 districts in Florida to estimate the effect of failing the fifth grade test on middle school and high school outcomes. These are regression discontinuity framework, which, as a reminder, can be thought of as kind of comparing students who are right at the failure cutoff uh, of those tests so that the students they're comparing are basically identical, but with some assigned to the remediation program and others who aren't. Okay, so before we get to the impact of remediation on the students, it's worth talking for a moment about what the remediation program entails and what effects it had on school populations. Most importantly, the students in the remedial classes get more resources than others. They have smaller class sizes, and the teachers in the remedial classes have been judged to be especially effective. Their teachers are also more likely to be of the same race or ethnicity as the students in those remedial classes, which is another factor that has been shown to facilitate student progress. So it seems like Florida is providing those students a lot of resources. 
And now let's talk about some of the effects. The short-term effects seem a little concerning, and there seems to be some evidence of a labeling effect on students who get the remedial program. That's because students in the remedial program are less likely to take advanced courses in other subjects. Remember that their analysis accounts for the fact that these are lower-performing students. So when we compare two students who are basically identical, except that one gets remediation in, say, English, we wouldn't necessarily expect that the remediated student would be less likely than another poor-performing student to take an advanced course in a different subject. But that is the case. Even more concerning, this tendency of remediated students not to take advanced courses in other subjects, which the authors call tracking, is more common for black and low-income students. But all of that is in sixth grade. What happens later, after the students have completed their remedial course, is more encouraging. In fact, the negative effects start dissipating immediately for all student subgroups. The negative effects are already smaller in seventh grade and even smaller still in eighth grade. But interestingly, in high school, the effects of remediation of the remediation program are all either zero or positive, and that's for all student subgroups. Now, most of those effects in high school are small or zero, but there were some effects that were substantial. Hispanic students seem to benefit the most. For Hispanic students, failing the fifth grade reading test is associated with taking 20% more college credit-bearing courses in high school, and specifically 30% more in English, and nearly 40% more in science. Failing and therefore getting this remedial help. Exactly. Failing it and then being much more likely to take that remedial class. One last thing about the study that was really fascinating is that the districts seem to have implemented the policy in different ways. One way to think about that difference is in how much they're tracking in the bad sense of assigning remedial students in one subject to low-level courses in other subjects. And that policy varied sharply across the Florida districts that they analyzed. In some districts, remediation in English actually increased the likelihood of advanced course taking in other subjects in the same year, just a tiny bit. But that was just in sixth grade. When they run some analyses and separate the districts that did more or less of that, they find that the districts that did less of it, that is students in remedial English might still be in advanced math or social studies, had positive effects of remediation on advanced course taking in high school across the board. And that was not the case for those districts that did more of that tracking in sixth grade. Wow. Yeah. First of all, Adam, very, very impressive. You packed a lot in there in a short amount of time. Your cogent summaries are entirely contrary to the spirit of the show, Adam. It's supposed to be one minute, right? That was really interesting. I I really like the part at the end, right? Where it says basically... It works if you can just get people to stop, you know, labeling kids. I mean, that's the takeaway. Yeah, it seems like the districts are doing this really differently. That was a point that they emphasize in the conclusion to the paper that this is not being implemented in the same way that some places students are getting sort of labeled and then they're just getting stuck in all remedial classes or in all lower level classes, as opposed to it having the intended effect of getting them remediated in the subject that they're behind in. And is it the labeling? It's it's not just a scheduling thing. You always hear this in middle school and high school that, you know, it's it's the master schedule and the kids get end up getting stuck in these, uh, you know, accidentally in these tracks. I'm not sure. And I mean, that would be I'd wonder why that would vary so much across those districts if that were the case. But Florida district's pretty big. Yeah, that was going to be my question, too. It's just like I mean, I'm using labeling colloquially, Mike. I mean, Right. It's not necessarily that that's what's going on, but just that there is some sort of, we'll call it systemic labeling, right? 
the, the, the right the the sort of nobody individual is doing it but the the system is labeling them right sort of indifferently yeah i mean that's just so fascinating look if it isn't done everywhere then it doesn't need to be done anywhere right so i mean i think it would be fascinating to really dig into that and figure out what's the mechanism here right like why are some districts doing this and some are not if we can change it then we should no and, and look it also sounds encouraging on so many fronts in that you know, they they did uh, the smaller class sizes. They found effective teachers. They were even able to do some uh, matching by race. I'll leave aside whether that was legal or constitutional to, to do that. Well, 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 hang on, Mike. They didn't say they did it explicitly, right? Right. All right. So they they found some legal way to do it. Fine. All right. Well, we'll, we'll set that aside for right now. But but look, they created a program that sounds like it had the elements of what you'd want to see in terms of helping kids catch up. And this is important because there is a conventional wisdom that says anything called remediation in education is bad, you know? And that's because there's been some studies that, yeah, if you all you do is just keep giving kids the same stuff they missed and make them do it again, uh, you know, without new approaches or better teachers or better curriculum or, you know, better supports, yeah, it doesn't work. The kids never make progress. Uh, but this sounds like a real intervention. You are intervening before it's too late to get kids on a better path. And that's exactly what sounds like that happened. And by the way, super cool that these researchers had so many years of data, because if we only looked after that first year or even two years, we would declare it a failure. Uh, and lo and behold, if you hang in there, the, the picture looks more complicated. And that's been the case with some of those policies, right? With like some of the third grade reading guarantee policies and stuff too, right? You look at it immediately and it doesn't look so great. And you look at it later and it looks a lot more positive. Yeah, I mean that's what the, that's what the pre-K folks say too, yeah. right? I, I don't know. I mean, I think we should all strive for consistency, regardless of where we come down on these specific policies. I, I don't know. I think I think we all tend to underestimate it, right? Or we assume that it's going to manifest in year one, and it doesn't always. No, that's right. And this fade out thing. I mean, it is. Uh, you know, Jill Barche has an interesting column this week at Heckinger about the pre-K. You know, the, the test scores fade out, but these other positive outcomes uh, seem to last. You know, some of whatever the non-cognitive things are in, in pre-K, you know, high school graduation, college going. It's this mystery. You know, maybe the, uh, is the point that uh, really good interventions can lead to short-term changes in student test scores. But eventually those test scores tend to return uh, to their previous trajectory. But it's something about that experience that still helps the kids. It's sort of frightening, honestly, Mike. I mean, you you think about how many of our assumptions are founded on on research that looks two or three years deep instead of seven or eight years yes. deep, right? I mean, we're probably all wandering around with just fundamentally misguided assumptions about what works. Sounds like a, a great call for more research. All right. Hey, uh, that is all the time we've got for this week. Thank you, Adam, for that great uh, research minute. My pleasure, guys. Love to have you come back on sometime soon. But until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.